the heavens are roaring. The heavens are roaring. I was thinking about that, and I was just thinking, how can we grasp a little bit of what it's going to be like? And I know this is a shallow, shallow, poor illustration, but I was thinking about how last Monday night when, when Alabama and Georgia, when they came out on the field, and the, the stands went wild. And I'm thinking, that's just a little bit of what it would be like to be with millions of our brothers and sisters from all generations, from all backgrounds in heaven, all agreeing, not half for Georgia, not half for Alabama. Actually, it's about 70% Georgia in the, in the Georgia Dome, just to be honest. That's kind of unfair. But all of us united, it's all Jesus, the name of Jesus. Let's pray to him. Father in heaven, how exciting to think that we're on a journey with you. A journey that one day will take us to be in your very presence. So, Lord, we want to reflect that reality in our lives right now in the way that we live, in the way that we speak, in the way that we honor you. And these jars of clay broken and inadequate yet striving seeking pressing desiring you in our lives every day that the name of Jesus would not be dishonored in any way by the way that we live and the way that we speak that is our heart's desire today help us not just for an hour on Sunday rest of the week, Lord, to honor you in all that we do. We agree together that the name of Jesus is worthy, more important than anything else, the name above every name. And all God's people agreed and said, amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible with you today, turn to Acts chapter 2 if you would. I, I just was thinking about this message because I've covered an awful lot of ground from Acts 1 through Acts 12. That's a lot of material. So I'm going to be going really fast <clears throat> and, and, and got me thinking about this whole series. And I just wanted to, to remind you that all the sermons are online. Go to TABC, 12th Avenue Baptist, our, our website. And if you, you feel like, man, I missed a chunk of that. Or, or maybe you're like somebody said, I didn't hear any of your words today. My kids were distracting me during the sermon, so I didn't hear any of your message. You can always go back, whatever the distraction is, um, you can go back and listen to it again during the week if you feel like you missed that, or just write down the references and look them up. We're back to the greatest story, and my, my ushers are going to help me. We have, we have this fresh off, fresh off the press, Acts 2 and 3 are on these sheets, so guys, if you'd be passing these out. While they're passing them out, let me just say this, if you don't have a notebook and you don't have Act 1, you can pick one of those up at the Welcome Center after the service, free of charge, free of charge. It's great. We'll give them to you. So this is Acts 2 and 3. And let me talk to you about this, this Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, that's not in the Bible. I mean, it's in the Bible, but Act one, the words Act 1, Act 2, Act 3 are not in the Bible. Neither is the, you know, uh, the unfolding plan of redemption. That, that, those are... Those are ways that we have, that I 
and not just I, but I think Bible scholars through the years have kind of put these thoughts together in a way that's coherent. Because sometimes you think, well, the, the Bible's hard to understand because it's not linear. You don't go from, a, you just read right through the Bible and everything's happening chronologically. It doesn't work that way. And, and so the story needs to be kind of, it, this is a way to categorize it into these three components, the provision of redemption, the proclamation of redemption, and the perfection of redemption that you'll see on that. So this is where we're going now. We, uh, we wrapped up uh, last week, Act 1, and, and remember if you said this is, this is what I think is the biggest break in Scripture between uh, Act 1 and Act 2, which actually happens not between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but between uh, uh, Act, really, uh, Jesus ascending and Acts 1 and then Acts 2. This is where the biggest break occurs, I think, in the story of the Bible. It's this transition from, from Israel to the church. And remember the old economy in the Old Testament was come to Israel, come to Israel, come to Israel, come to the God of Israel, become a Jew. The way you became a follower of the true and living God was you became a Jew in the Old Testament. Now it's a, it's a transition to go to the nations and tell everybody you can be a part of the church. You can be a part of the family of God. You don't have to be born a Jew. You don't have to convert to Judaism. You can be part of the family of God. And that's a huge transition. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. God, God dropped crumbs all through the Old Testament for us to follow to get to this place. Isaiah 56, some of you may know this passage. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Okay? So, so this idea, this idea that God is going to embrace all the nations, it's, there's, there's hints and components of it all through the Old Testament. And in the old economy, you came to Israel, and now he's saying, we're bringing it to you. Bringing it to the world. And so we're going to see the, 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 the launching of this new economy, the church, instead of Israel. Now, again, people break this up in different ways. Some, some, some of you may have been, have been exposed to dispensationalism. That's not as popular as it used to be. But, but back when I was a kid, I think everybody had a Schofield Bible and had all the... Any of you ever have a Schofield Bible with the dispensations in it? A few of you admit it. I see you out there. And, and in the dispensations, that's, the one, that's one way people break it up. And the other people, sometimes, you know, they have covenants. They did it by the covenants, the different covenants. And so when I do Act 1 and 2 and 3, it's just another way of kind of compartmentalizing this in a way that, that, that makes some sense. You know, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thinking in Acts 1 through 12, we have the, the launching of the church. But it's almost, um, and I heard one Bible teacher use the analogy that it's the it's the birthing of the church in a very real sense out of Israel because we have our, we have our roots 
back there. And the church came out of that. And I like the birthing analogy because you're going to see as we go through these chapters, the, the birthing of the church, and I never had a baby, but some of you have. And they tell me it's painful. Can I have a witness? Yes, yes. A few of you agree with that, and the other rest of you do too. You just didn't raise your hand. And so we, if, as we go through Acts 1 through 12, we're going to see here that it, it's a painful process. It's a painful process. And, 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 and I hope I, can, hope I can capture that in what I say today. Um, it's interesting because, you know, God built the nation, and he told Abraham he's going to do it in Genesis 12. And it took a long time. It took hundreds and hundreds of years. Today, this is, we're going to go in these, these, early, you know, these early chapters of Acts, and we're talking about months, maybe a few years at the most transpiring. I can't remember exactly how long, but it's really quick. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about time this week, and I, I was reading a, a novel, and it's one of these lawyer murder mystery kind of things that just kind of mindless stuff that I like to read, and, and sometimes just to, anyway, um, so they're trying to figure out about this, and, and, and the reporter is talking to the policeman, and I really like this. The reporter is trying to get some information from the policeman, and he, so he says, to, he says to the policeman, so something's happening. And the policeman says, something's always happening. That's why there's time. It keeps everything from happening at once. Hmm. God is timeless. God doesn't need time. We need time, I think, in a sense. And God, in His graciousness, doesn't have everything happen at once, but He uses time to break it down. And that's why this can kind of make sense to us. Again, Ephesians 2 last week, God's broken down the partition between Jews and Gentiles, and we're going to see how painful that is today. Let's start in Acts 1, verses 6 through 8, and we'll get to Act 2 in a minute. That's, that's where I'm going to focus some length. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but, but whew, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We'll be back to that in just a minute. Are you going to restore the kingdom is what the disciples thought. And this, is a, this was just full of their misunderstanding. They thought it restored. They thought they were expecting a political and a, a territorial kingdom. And they're still thinking God's going to do it through Israel. And he thought, they thought it was going to happen like today, like Thursday, whatever day it was. At this time, are you going to do this? And Jesus corrects their misunderstanding. He says to them, God the Father has the timetable. And the kingdom is going to be spiritual in nature. And God's going international. God's going international. He's not just this hometown kind of thing here in Jerusalem. He's going international. And the rest of chapter 1, we spend with them replacing Judas Iscariot and waiting and praying with other believers. And we see that they start here just like they did in the Old Testament where we had the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Israel. We see that we start here with 12 apostles. Kind of a parallel. By the time you get to verse 15, in Acts 1, it says there's 120 people. It's going to get better. Acts 2 is next. Acts chapter 2. Let's read some of that. Acts 2. Oh, not John. Acts. Acts. 
When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They were all together, and this is the, this is the day of Pentecost. This is the coming of the Holy Spirit upon them. And, 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 and I get this analogy, this is the birthday of the church, and there's those, like all their, their birthday candles with the flames of fire coming on them. And then they speak in languages that they didn't know. The Holy Spirit enabled them to speak in languages they had never learned. Let's pick up with verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language, utterly amazed. They asked, are not all these people who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native tongue? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazing and perplexed. They ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine, um, which is kind of illogical that that would help you speak in language that made sense. Perhaps it wouldn't make sense, but it would. And this is kind of reverse Babel. You remember Acts 11 where, I mean, Genesis 11 where they scattered the people, the Tower of Babel, and, and they gave them, made them all speak in languages so they couldn't understand it. And this is kind of reversal of this. They're all coming and they're all hearing it in their own language so they can understand the good news. Now, again, this is a gift to bring different people together this, this gift to speak in a language they didn't know. But notice it says in verse 5, these were God-fearing Jews from every nation. So we're trying to birth the church, but we're still, we're still, we still got this Jewish flavor, okay? Peter preached that day. He preached Jesus as the promised Messiah, and it says there that 3,000 people were converted. 3,000. So now we have 3,120, if you want to add them to the 120 that we already had back in uh, uh, verse 1, 15, chapter 1, verse 15. So in one day, they grow from 120 to 3,120. God is working. God is multiplying out of this seed. So it's beginning this new channel. It's still rooted in the old channel of redemption, Israel, but it started anyway. See, it's still rooted because when you get that great passage in Acts 2, 42 through 47, and we get a lot of wonderful principles out of that passage about fellowship together and God doing mighty things and prayer and being together and sharing and all of that. But notice they went every day to the temple courts. They're still tied to Judaism. They're still tied to Israel. Are they a church yet? Legitimate question. You go to chapter 3, there was, it says that they went to the temple every day when it gets to chapter 3. And they're believers, but they're still holding on to this Jewish identity. And that's the great story where Peter encounters the lame man and says, help, you know, give me some money. And he said, I don't have any money, but what I have, I'll give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he stood up and walked. 
Wow. Chapter 4 is kind of a crisis chapter where they come in direct conflict. There's, There's direct conflict between the life of the church and the life of Jesus and the dead, lifeless Jesus rejecting Judaism. And they, in chapter 4, verse 2, they are forced out of, they're forced out of the temple. The people were greatly disturbed because the apostles were preaching, teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection. They the, verse 3, they seized Peter and John because it was evening. They put them in jail until the next day. Notice verse 5, 4, excuse me. Many heard the message, believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So the church is really growing. There's 5,000 just men. So if you add the women and children who, I mean, over 10,000 people here. The church is rapidly growing. But they're in conflict now. They're they're being birthed out of the nation of Israel. They're tied back to Judaism. There's this temple idea. They're still holding on to that. And now they're being extruded out. A couple big things in chapter 4. One is in verse 12. One of our proof texts on why we teach that Jesus is the only way. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. This along with John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. These are, our, these are the germs of uh, the, the, the core of the teaching that Jesus is the only way to God. And these are the passages we go back to when people challenge that idea or say that we are being narrow and bigoted. No, we're not, but... But God, this is the only way God has provided. And it's like if you're, going, if you're going to a town and there's only one road into that town and you tell people, well, just get on any road, it doesn't matter. How illogical is that if there's only one road in and only one road out? Anyway, and then the other big, big thought here is in Acts 4, 18 and 19. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, listen to you or to him. You be the judge. I don't think that's quite all of it, is it? Anyway, let me look at it here. Uh, 18, is that, is that in there? Okay, call them in the command, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Verse 20 needs to go with that. That's on me, I didn't get it there. I didn't get it on there, so we should have added that. The idea here is that we obey God rather than man. And I was thinking about this, and again, there's all these parallels to the Old Testament. Remember the midwives? When, the, when Pharaoh said, you know, kill all the baby boys, and they said, we're not going to do that because they feared God more than man. That's a principle that's not only here in Acts chapter 4, but it's all through the Bible, that God comes first. And when, to, when the laws of the land, and we've got to counterbalance this. There's always counterpoints. There's always a tension in Scripture because we go to Romans 13. It says the powers that be are ordained by God. Obey the laws of the land. 
Obey the laws of the land. So we, we balance that because sometimes, though, the law of the land, where to obey the law of the land means to disobey God. And that's when we come to that place of civil disobedience. And we say, I'll take whatever consequences the civil government puts upon me for me to stand and do the right thing for God. Now, I want to be clear about that. Um, there, it's, it's, it's always a tension to obey God rather than man. It's always a tension. And um, because we want to we say, yeah, but I, I don't like what they're doing with my tax money, so I'll, I won't pay my taxes. I don't, think that's, I don't think that's legit. I don't think that's what it's talking about. This is, this, is, this is strong language. They're saying, don't preach in the name of Jesus. Don't teach in the name of Jesus. Don't tell me to do that. Don't tell me to quit doing that. I can't. The numbers are continuing to increase in the early fellowship. This early fellowship in Jerusalem was a powerhouse. I mean, it really was. They were persecuted, but they preached in the name of Jesus anyway. They shared their possessions with one another, not because they had to, but because they chose to. Wow. Powerful uh, prayers, powerful miracles. Uh, the judgment of God for people that lied in Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. But they're still all clustered here in Jerusalem, and they all still have this Jewish, kind of a Jewish identity. But Jesus has said, you're going to be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so when we get to chapter 8, what does it say in chapter 8, verse 1? And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, that's talking about Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Have we heard those words before? Judea and Samaria? Uh, God, God used persecution in his redemptive plan to force them out. They're, they're hunkered down in, in Jerusalem and he scatters them through his persecution because his gospel is going to go out to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. He's got a program. He's got a redemptive plan. And it's not all Jerusalem anymore. Now there's other pipelines. There's one in Judea, and there's one in Samaria, and there's one here. And that is the beginning of the church where there are churches around the world, thousands, hundreds of thousands of churches probably, around, maybe million around the world that are all the pipelines from God today. Chapter 9, verse 31, in the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened because they'd been obedient. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. They're growing, a number of churches are growing, but also the number of people, uh, are, the number of the people in the churches are grow, is growing too. Uh, chapter 9 is the wonderful story of the conversion of Saul to Paul, and I don't have time to do that. I just would point out in verses 15 and 16, we have this international mandate again. The Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. He's going to get to proclaim me to kings, and he's going to suffer. You know, sometimes we get this idea that if we're following God, then it's all going to be, you know, roses and chocolates and sweet songs all the time, you know? And it, it's just not. He's going to be my chosen vessel. God chose Paul. He says, I chose you. You can go to the Gentiles. You can speak to people for me, and you're going to speak to kings. 
and you're going to suffer. We don't think that way, do we? It's always the pathway. Someone told me one time, Christian growth is always slow and painful. I found it to be true in my experience. I think I can argue it from Scripture. But again, God's going inter- international. Well, why is he telling us this again? Because it's hard for us to get our minds around this. God still has work to do. These are good Jews who have become Christians, but they still are holding on to the separatism, uh, separatistic ideas of Israel. Acts chapter 10, I'm not going to read it, but this is, this is, a, this is, a, a, this is a watershed uh, passage of Scripture. It's, it's a great story. That it's, it tells us there was a man named Cornelius who was not, who was not a Jew. He was a Gentile, but he, he's described in this passage as, as being uh, devout and God-fearing and generous, and he prayed to God. And God gave him a vision, and he says, go find Simon Peter. He's up at Joppa. Go, go find him. And, and, and go get him. So he's got men, men under his authority. So he sends three of his men and says, go get this guy, Simon Peter. He's up there staying with, who was it, the Tanner or whatever there in Joppa. Anyway, I can't remember the story. But he goes up there, they send, he sends these guys to go get Paul. I mean, uh, Peter. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Peter's in the house. And, and it says while people were preparing lunch, he didn't want to be part of kitchen detail, so he goes upstairs. He goes upstairs and he's praying, which is harder work than being on the kitchen detail, by the way. So he goes up on the roof and he's praying. And while he's praying there, he goes into a trance. And in this trance, there's sheets being lowered from heaven that have all kinds of animals in there. And there's animals that. In the Old Testament, on the dietary law of the Old Testament, which we're not under anymore, okay? So I don't want you to start connecting dots that I don't think are there. The Old Testament dietary law, some of the animals that are in there are, are, are clean animals, the animals that were okay to eat, and some that were not okay to eat. And they, they called them unclean animals. And so when he sees the sheep coming down, there's, there's the clean, the okay animals to eat and the animals that were not okay to eat. And so God says, rise up and kill and eat. And he says, oh, I can't do this. These are unclean animals. He said, God says, yes, you can. You see, good Jews never ate pulled pork and they threw the catfish back. And thank God today we can eat pulled pork and fried catfish. I thought I'd get an amen on that. Yeah, but, 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 but for, for a good Jew, that was, that was wrong. So, so he gives him this vision, and then he says, three, he says, three guys are coming and looking for you. Go with them. So he's, he's dealing with his heart directly through this illustration and now through direct communication. So they come, and he goes with them, and, 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 and Peter's beginning to get it. Chapter 10, verse 28. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Now, this is huge. Drop down to verses 34 and 35. 
Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accept people from every nation, the one who fears Him and does what is right. Powerful, powerful stuff. This is, this is a watershed moment in the life of this early church that's being birthed out of Judaism to become the church. This is the breaking down of this barrier. Gentiles can be saved without becoming Jews. That was the old paradigm. This is the new paradigm. So it goes back, it goes back, and, and Peter gives a report, and, and he getting, he's getting criticized by these early Jewish Christian leaders for hanging out with Gentiles. So we come to chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them and as he has come on us at the beginning, then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Who was I to think I could stand in God's way? I think it's the New Living Translation says, who was I to oppose God? Who was I to oppose God? In one place it says, uh, one of the speakers says, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. That, which kind of speaks to how they looked at us. Even the Gentiles, we're going to let them in too. Remember last week, God quit using Israel, and, and Jesus told that story of the, of the vineyard and how they rejected the when, the, when they came to collect, he rejected the servants, he rejected the son, and then Jesus said in, in that great passage in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and he says, I'm going to give them, verse 19 says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound on earth, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. God has given the keys of the kingdom to the church. He's saying, what Israel used to be, what Israel used to have, you got it now. You got it now in the church. And it tells us in, um, in Acts 12, 24, church continued to grow. The word of God continued to spread and flourish. And the church flourished and, and grew. And so this, my friends, is the launching of the church, the birthing of the church out of Judaism into full-blown being the church as the channel of redemption that God is going to use now. I, I want to go back and just spend a little time, though, as I wrap up today in, in Acts chapter 2. You know, I, you, know you always think, um, well, I always think, maybe you don't think, I'm a preacher, I think about sermons, and um, you think about them too, you think, I hope it's short today, and, and I'm always thinking... I'm thinking about how I can be better and how I can do it better. And so I think you, if, you, if you think about this, Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people were converted. I thought, well, maybe, maybe I, that's the sermon I ought to be preaching. Uh, maybe that's what I ought to be You know, you think about that. Now, obviously, it was the Holy Spirit, the work of God doing it. And it was miraculous. But, but I think there's some, journals, some, germs of, uh, some germ thoughts that we would do well to notice here. 
Um, and so let me just run through this real quick. There's the gospel message, which is at the core of this is the preaching of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is our message, what Jesus has done. It says it this way in Acts. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It was impossible for death to hold him. I love that language. And so he's saying here, this is it. This is the gospel message. Jesus, this Jesus that you put to death, died and buried because death could not hold him because he's God and he offers to us life. And he talked about the Old Testament demanded two witnesses. And so there's the gospel witness of you saw it, we saw it, and then the Bible says this. And he fulfilled and he quotes from Psalm 16 and 110 and Joel 2 in his sermon. So we have the gospel message, the witness, the gospel results is in verse 38, where there is the forgiveness of sins. He forgives us of our sins, and He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. He makes us new creations in Him. So how do you get this? Well, He says in verse 38 that we are to repent. He says to repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? Well, repentance. It's a radical turn from going our own way to follow God and to go God's way. It's a radical turn from our sin to living for God. It has the idea of being broken. It has the idea of being surrendered. It has the idea of yielding. It is, it's, a, it's a little word, but it's big, it's big news. Repent. Turn away from going that way. And then he says, and be baptized. Now, is, does this mean that baptism is a work that we have, that's kind of, is it kind of a package deal? We add baptism to true repentance to come to Christ for salvation. I don't think so. I, I don't think that's what it's, it's saying. I think salvation is the inner work of God that He does in our lives when we truly repent and turn to Him. Now, that should produce within us a new identity. And the symbol of that new identity in the church is baptism. The symbol of that we are identifying with Jesus Christ and we're following Him. The way that we make that public, the way that we identify with Him is through obedience to baptism. So again, I see this baptism not as as a requirement for salvation, but the normal overflow of a truly repentant heart to identify publicly. John Stott said this, Jesus Christ does not impose His gifts upon us unconditionally. What the gospel demands is a radical turn from sin to Christ, which takes the form inwardly of repentance and faith, and outwardly of baptism. For submission to baptism in the name of Christ, the the Christ we have formerly repudiated, gives public evidence of penitent faith in Him. Additionally, by this same repentance, faith, and baptism, we change allegiance as we are transferred 
into the new community of Jesus. So, in a real sense, the hard work, the hard work of this is the repentance. Because that, that's serious business. When you turn and say, I am choosing to give my life to Christ, to follow Christ, to turn from going my way and being the boss of my own life and being Lord of my own life, and I realize I'm broken and I'm sinful, and I'm turning from that to follow God, to yield my life to Him, to be surrendered to Him, and to go His way. He goes on to say, though, you need to establish your new identity. We, we, all, we, we all have, we, 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 we have symbols. We have symbols of our new identity. We, we do it in different ways. We wear, we wear wedding bands. Did that make you get married when you put on a wedding band? No, it didn't. But I wear mine. It's a symbol that I'm a married man. Troy, stand up. Face to face the group. What kind of shirt does he have on? It says something on the front there. It says, Steelers. Thank you very much. That's a symbol of his identification. He's identifying with Pittsburgh Steelers. You can like it, you can hate it, but it's, it's, it's crystal clear. It's crystal clear who he's identifying with. Symbols matter. That's why I think baptism matters, because it's a, it's a symbol of our new identity of who we are. Uh, probably one of the most powerful symbols that we have was from World War II. This is the raising of the flag on Iwo Jima. There's a great book that came out about 10 years ago called The Flag of Our Fathers. It's a great read if you haven't read it. But this is a symbol. And the flag, the flag for us is a symbol of our nation and, 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 and identity. And we feel that. But we, we, <laughs> we don't feel it like those men in that picture feel it. We can't. You see, you see what happened was their, their brothers on that island had been wounded and died because what happened was this island was formerly enemy territory and they had conquered enemy territory in the name of the United States of America. And raising that flag... I think is more powerful than any of us can really get our minds around to those men. In a very real sense, when you repent and then as a sign of your faith, you follow God in obedience to baptism, you're raising the flag and you're saying, you're saying this was formerly, this was formerly enemy territory. Not anymore. Not anymore. I'm raising the flag of Jesus. I'm raising the flag of Jesus over my life. That is my new identity. This is new territory that belongs to Him. So, the application of this, the big application is the repentance. Some of you have never repented and yielded your life to Christ. Maybe you've come to church and maybe you've been a good person, but you've never done that. And that's the hard work. Some of you have repented, and, but since then you haven't been baptized. You haven't made that public statement. And, and you need to follow the Lord in baptism the next time we have one. Because you need to testify to that, that that's your identity. 
And in our economy, that's the place, because you stand in the water with me, I said, do you publicly profess Christ today? Is it your desire to follow Him? Those are part of, that's what we do. That's part of it. So, Acts 1 through 12, the beginning of the church. Next week, next week, I'm, on, I'm giving you a homework assignment. It's in the, in the notebook if you have it. But read Romans 9, 10, and 11. I'm going to talk about what, what's God doing with the nation of Israel now. What about Israel? If Israel was formerly the channel of redemption, now we got the church. So what's going on with Israel? Come back next week. You'll find out. Stand together. If you have questions about repentance and baptism, you'd like to talk further, I'd love to chat with you. Father, be at work in our lives this week. Lord, we thank you for the early church fathers who suffered through the ordeal of uh, the, the persecution, the pain, the suffering, and some of them even dying in the beginning of what is so important to us to be a part of your church, the way that you're building your kingdom now on this earth and until you return again one day. Lord, may each person here know that they're part of your church through repentance and following you in obedience to baptism. In Jesus' name, amen.